Welcome to the Deepers Creepers podcast, where we like to get high and talk about horror movies. I'm Casey, and unfortunately this week Jess isn't with us. We've just had a lot going on, vacations, birthdays, and the like. So, uh, I decided this week I was just going to read a few uh, short, scary stories to y'all. Um, few of these are some of my favorite creepypastas, and one is just a short story that I read in college that I really liked. And uh, yeah, so we're gonna, I am gonna read some of those to you guys, and I uh, hope you guys enjoy it. In the meantime, make sure you like and subscribe to the YouTube channel, um, you know, all the social medias, Instagram and Twitter at Deepers Creepers, TikTok at Deepers Creepers Pod, and of course, as always, Email us at deeperscreeperspod at gmail.com with any comments, questions, concerns, you know, and the like. All right. Enjoy your short stories. This is called Lights in the Distance. A young man suffering from an insomnia was trying to fall asleep one night. After many minutes, he was still awake as it got more and more late. He turned on his side and looked out the window, noticing two streetlights in the distance. He rested his eyes on them and soon fell asleep. The next night, he found himself once again kept awake by his sleep disorder. Remembering the remedy he tried the night before, he turned to his side and looked out the window for two streetlights. He found them and once again fell asleep peacefully. The next night, his sleeping troubles were back, but he simply looked out the window for the streetlights and rested his eyes on them. Tonight, they were flickering every few seconds. He assumed that the bulbs would soon burn out, and as his eyes began to fall shut, the lights finally burnt out. He woke up in the morning refreshed. As he got up, he looked out the window toward the streetlights, hoping someone would come to fix them. However, as he looked, he noticed something odd. There weren't streetlights there. He leaned closer to the window to double-check, but still the streetlights were nowhere to be found. Then he looked down and noticed something small. He leaned closer to the window to double-check, but the streetlights were nowhere to be found. Then he looked down and noticed small claw marks on the windowsill, as if something was perched there. His insomnia got worse. Okay, um, this one is quite a bit longer than some of the others, but uh, it is probably my favorite creepypasta I've ever read, so enjoy. This story is called, If You're Armed and at the Glenmont Metro, Please Shoot Me, written by Peter Frost David. If you're armed and at the Glenmont Metro, please shoot me. Make it a headshot. Shoot me in the temple, aiming slightly downward. I need the bullet to travel the shortest possible distance through my brain before it hits my hippocampus. If I'm lucky, the sensation of the gunshot ripping through my skull will only last a few decades. As awful as this sounds, you'll be doing me an enormous favor. Death by headshot, as soon as possible, is vastly better than the alternative. My ordeal started over 10,000 years ago, at 10.15 this morning. I earn extra money by participating in drug trials. I'm a so-called healthy subject who takes experimental drugs to help assess side effects. Once it was a kidney drug. A few times it's been something for blood pressure or cholesterol. This morning they told me the drug I took was a psychoactive substance intended to accelerate brain function. 
None of the drugs I had tested so far had ever done anything for me in the recreational sense. In other words, none of the drugs I've tested have given me a killer buzz or mellowed me out or anything. Maybe I've always ended up in the placebo group, but nothing I've tested has affected me at all. Today's drug was different. This shit worked. They gave me a pill at 10.15 and told me to hang out in the waiting room until they called me back for some tests. Only about 30 minutes, the research assistant told me. I flopped onto the waiting room couch and read a few articles from a copy of Psychology Today that was sitting on the coffee table. They hadn't called me back when I finished the Psychology Today, so I picked up a U.S. news and read it cover to cover. Then I read an old Scientific American. What was taking them so damn long? I sluggishly turned my head to look at the wall clock. It was only 10.23 a.m. I had read all three magazines in eight minutes. I remember thinking this was going to be a long day. I was right. The waiting room had a little bookshelf with some used hardcovers on it. When I stood up to walk to the bookshelf, it felt like my legs barely worked. It's not that they were weak, they were just slow. It took a full minute just to stand up off the couch, and another minute to take two steps to the bookcase. I scanned the old books on the shelf and picked out a copy of Moby Dick. My arms had the same problem as my legs. Just reaching one foot in front of me to grab the book took a long time. I actually got bored just waiting for my hand to reach the spine of the book. I slogged back to the couch and collapsed into, onto it in a slow-motion fall that reminded me of the low-gravity hops of astronauts on the moon. I opened Moby Dick, slowly, and began reading. I started with, Call me Ishmael, and got as far as Ahab throwing his pipe into the sea, which was all the way to friggin' chapter 30, before they called me back. How are you feeling? The research assistant asked me. I feel slow, I said. Actually, it's the other way around. Everything seems slow because you're so fast. But my legs, my arms, they're moving in slow motion. Your body seems like it's moving slowly because your brain is fast. Your brain is running 10 or 20 times faster than normal. You are thinking and perceiving reality at an accelerated pace. But your body is still constrained by the laws of biomechanics. Frankly, you're moving much faster than a normal person. She pantomimed a, motion, a jogging motion. But your brain is running so much faster right now that even your fast walk seems very slow to you. I thought about my slow motion flop onto the waiting couch. Even if my muscles had slowed down, my body would still react to gravity the same way. But in the waiting room, I even fell in slow motion. Slow muscles couldn't explain why gravity seemed weaker. My brain was going at warp 10. That's how I managed to read three magazines and the first 30 chapters of Moby Dick in 15 minutes. They ran a series of tests on me. The physical tests were fun. They made me juggle three balls, then four, then six. I had no problem keeping six balls in the air because they seemed to move so slowly. It was boring, frankly, waiting for each ball to move through its arc so I could catch it with my slow motion hands and toss it back into the air. They threw Cheerios in the air and I caught them with chopsticks. They dropped a handful of coins and I counted the total value before they hit the ground. The cognitive tests were less fun, but very illuminating. Finish a 50-word search, three seconds. Solve an intricate maze drawn on a poster-sized paper, two seconds. View a slideshow projected at 10 images per second and answer detailed questions about what I saw, 95% correct. They told me I had measured 250 on the NOP scale. Apparently that's deep into human superhuman rage thinking speeds. Then they sent me home. It'll wear off in a few hours, they said. 
which will seem like days to you. Try to use the residual effects to get some work done. Catch up on some work emails while you're still in high-speed mode. The ride home was horrible. It was only three metro stops, and in real-world time, it only took about 35 minutes. But in my drug-accelerated hypertime, it felt like days. Days. Just walking out of the medical research suite to the elevator seemed like it took an hour. I sprinted out of the office, willing my legs to push me faster. But the laws of biomechanics held me prisoner. As accelerated as my brain was, I couldn't do anything to make my legs work faster. The huge disconnect between my body and mind made it extremely difficult to judge how and when to slow down, turn, or rotate my body. I basically turned into a giant slow-motion spaz. I misjudged my speed and rammed into the wall by the elevator button at a pretty good speed. Even though I could see the wall coming at me, I couldn't make my finger outstretched to hit the elevator button, move away fast enough, I jammed it against the wall. Hard. The pain was intense. If my brain had been running at regular speed, it probably would have only hurt for 30 seconds or so. But in my accelerated state, the intense pain seemed to last for half an hour. 45 minutes, maybe. The elevator ride was horrible. It felt like I spent four or five hours just descending seven floors with nothing to look at but the interior of the elevator car. I sprinted to the metro station. I have to admit, this part was almost fun. Even though my body moved at what seemed to me super slow speed, I could still carefully choose how and where to place my feet, swing my arms, and turn my torso. It only took a block or two to get used to having a brain that ran two dozen times faster than my body. Then I basically sprint danced for the rest of the way, twisting and juking between people on the sidewalk and dodging moving cars within inches, aka minutes, of clearance. I spent an hour, in my time frame, descending into the subway and running to the platform, endless tedium waiting the six minutes for the red line train to arrive. Although there was more to look at on the metro platform than inside the elevator, it was intensely boring. I should have stolen that copy of Moby Dick. The red line train roared into the station in slow motion. The normally high-pitched squeal of its brakes was a frequency shifted by my high-speed mind to a low, long tone, like a monotone tuba solo. It wasn't just the squealing subway train that was three octaves lower than normal. All sound was slowed to the point of near inaudibility. Voices were gone, shifted below the threshold of my frequency of hearing. I did manage to hear a screaming baby on my subway car. Her shrieks slowed to sound like whale songs. Sharp sounds like car horns and trucks bouncing over potholes were low, muddied roars like distant thunder. Back at the research offices, I could still hear and communicate with the research staff, but now verbal communication with anyone would be impossible. The effects of the drugs were still intensifying. I spent what seemed like days on the fucking red line train. Days listening to the whale song of the screaming baby and the tuba solo of the brakes. Where ordinary voices were frequency shifted out of my audio range, smells didn't seem to be affected. I never became nose blind to the body odor, the stench of the train's brakes, and the melange of farts and other smells wafting through the metro car. I finally got back to my apartment. Sprinting through my open door and into the front hall at full speed was like a slow, relaxing lift down a lazy river. I was relieved to be home. At least I had stuff I could do there. I picked up the book I was reading, 100 Years of Solitude, and finished it. Despite turning the pages so quickly that I tore many of them, 
It seemed like most of the time I spent finishing the book was spent on page-turning and not actually reading. Three minutes had passed since I got home. I tried surfing the internet. My God, it takes a long time for these computers to boot these days. But it was frustratingly slow. Hours, seemingly, to load each new page and a fraction of a second to read it. A hundred articles in my newsfeed read, and just three more minutes done. I dipped into my pile of yet-to-be-read books and finished two more. Four more minutes had passed. I decided to try to sleep off the remaining effects of the drug. Unfortunately, whatever part of my mind is responsible for perception, that part that's been accelerated to hyperspeeds by the drug, isn't the same as the part that governs sleep. Despite being awake for what I perceived as days, my physical brain still thought it was 1.25 p.m. It was not ready for sleep. Nevertheless, I tried to sleep. I walked to my bedroom, a slow 45-minute drift through my apartment, and flung myself into bed, lazily falling like a feather onto the mattress. I closed my eyes and lay there for hours and hours, ten minutes of reality time, before giving up. Sleep would not come. I was facing what was going to feel like days or maybe even weeks of being trapped in a slow-motion prison. So I took an Ambien. The sensation of the pill and the splash of the water I used to swallow it sliding down my throat was sickening. A lump that blocked my breathing, moving like a slug down my esophagus. I read a book. Ten minutes passed. I read another. Eighteen minutes passed since I took the Ambien. I threw the book across the room in disgust at my situation. The book slowly pirouetted and spun through the air like a leaf blowing in the breeze. It hit the wall with a long, faint rumble, the only sound I had heard for what seemed like hours, then drifted to the floor like a flip-flop sinking in a swimming pool. The force of gravity hadn't changed since I took the pill. The laws of physics were the same. It was just my perception of time that had gone wackadoo. This meant I could use the speed things seemed to fall as a way of judging the effects of the drug. Based on how long it took the book to drift to the floor, I estimated the effects of the drug were still intensifying. I read a magazine. I turned on the television. I clearly saw each frame of video like I was watching a slideshow. Frustrated, I turned the television off. I read some more. The first two books of Churchill's A History of the English-Speaking Peoples. Not exactly a light read. Frankly, I hated it. But given the hours of tedium it would take to go get another book off my bookshelf, just sitting on the couch and reading Churchill was better, or at least less worse. It had now been 35 minutes since I took the Ambien. I lay down on the couch and closed my eyes. Time passed. I inhaled. An hours-long process. Time passed. I exhaled for more hours. Sleep would not come. I needed a new plan. I decided to go back to the offices where they gave me the drug. Maybe they would have something to counteract its effects, or at least something to knock me out until it wore off. I exited my apartment as fast as possible, taking hours in my time frame to do so. I didn't even bother locking the door. It would have taken too long. I exited my apartment as fast as possible, taking hours in my time frame to do so. I didn't even bother locking the door. It would have taken too long. Down the stairs, it's faster than the elevator if you run, through the lobby, out the front door, and onto the street. These few things felt like a long day at the office. Sprinting down the street, dancing and weaving between pedestrians with what must have looked to them superhuman dexterity. Down the first flight of stairs at the metro, across the landing, another hour. Then onto the second flight of stairs. That's when the ambient hit me. The ambient didn't make me sleepy, not at all. 
Instead, it must have had a severe cross-reaction with the experimental drug I took this morning. I was bounding down the second flight of stairs, moving in slow motion, but still making perceptible progress. Then wham! Everything stopped. The dull roar of the street and metro noise ceased, replaced by the most perfect silence I've ever experienced. My downward motion seemed to completely freeze. Before the ambient kicked in, my perception of time was maybe a few hundred times slower than real time. After the ambient took effect, time moved thousands of times slower. Every second seemed like days to me. Even just moving my eyes to focus on a new point was like an impossibly slow roll across my visual field. Over the course of the afternoon, I learned to walk, run, and jump when my mind ran hundreds of times faster than my body. But with another four or five orders of magnitude of slowdown caused by the ambient, body control was almost impossible. I fell on the stairs. Even though I was all but frozen mid-step, controlling my muscles was impossible. I commanded my foot forward for hours, then backward for hours more when it seemed like I would miss the next step. Hours attempting to adjust the angle of my ankle, then readjusting when it felt wrong. Despite these efforts, I rolled my ankle on the next step. The pain wasn't at all mitigated by the slowness. Hours of increasing strain on my bent ankle. The nerves that send pain into the brain must work differently than the nerves in my ear. Sonic energy was spread out over time, diluted until it was perceptible. Pain flowed into my brain, undiluted by the change in my perception of time. Hours and hours of increasing weight on my turned ankle turned into hours and hours of increasing pain on increasing pain. I pitched forwards, my high-speed mind completely unable to control my low-speed body. I drifted forward for days, managing to rotate my torso enough to keep my head from impacting the ground first. I eventually landed on my right shoulder. At first, the impact wasn't even noticeable. Then I felt a slight pressure in my shoulder as it came in contact with the ground. The pressure grew, bringing increasing pain for hour upon hour. My shoulder finally gave out, popping out of its socket with an endless, sickening tug. I came to a stop days later, crumpled onto the ground, staring at the ceiling. The pain in my shoulder still screaming with the intensity of a fresh, violent injury. I had plenty of time to think during that fall. If every second seemed like days to me, then each minute of real-world time would be like years. Even if the drug cleared my system in the next two or three hours, this nightmare would seem to last centuries. By the time I hit the ground, I had a plan. I would somehow get to the platform and throw myself in front of the train. I twisted onto my hands and knees, days of my dislocated shoulder crying for relief. I misjudged my rotation and rolled on my back. I tried again, collapsing onto my face as I tried to figure out how to control a body that moves slower than grass grew. Weeks of effort were finally rewarded with success. I stabilized on my hands and knees. If just getting on all fours was this difficult, I figured that walking or running was completely out of the question. So I crawled. I crawled through the metro tunnel. The dumb looks on the faces in the crowd lingered on me for weeks. I crawled under the turnstile and onto the escalator. The escalator spilled rush hour crowd onto the platform at the same speed glacier spills ice into the sea. I looked out over the crowded platform during my in- interminable downward ride. The train status sign said the next train wouldn't arrive for 20 minutes. 20 minutes was like a year to me. I'd have to spend a year on the metro platform waiting to die. I crawled off the escalator, enduring days of stupid expressions on the commuters' faces. 
I crawled a few feet to the concrete bench and curled up next to it, trying to find a position to lessen the pain in my shoulder. Then the problem with time got worse. Impossibly worse. The massive slowdown on the stairs was just the beginning of the interaction between the experimental drug and the ambient. It fully hit me when I was curled up by the bench. I blinked. Years of darkness followed. Sound was already gone, and with my blink, sight was gone as well. All that existed was the pain from my fall. My hyper-accelerated mind wasted no time compensating for the lack of sensory input. Voices spoke to me. They sung to me in languages that never existed. Patterns and faces and colors came and went in my mind's eye. I recalled my whole life and imagined living another. I forgot English. I settled into a profound despair. I spoke to God. I became God. I imagined a new universe and brought it to life with my thoughts. Then I did it all again and again. My eyes opened with geologic slowness. A faint glow, weeks. A slit of light, weeks. A narrow view of the metro platform, ankles of the commuters near me, and an advertisement on the opposite wall. I extracted my phone from my pocket, a project that spanned decades. How can I even explain the boredom? The pain in my shoulder is nothing compared to the boredom. Every thought I can think, I have thought hundreds of times already. The view of ankles and advertisements never changes. Never. The boredom is so intense that it's tangible, like a solid object of metal and stone wedged into my skull. Inescapable. What are my options? If I crawl and fall onto the tracks without an un oncoming train to crush me, I won't die. I'll experience even more pain from the four-foot fall, but I'll likely be rescued by some do-gooder on the platform and unable to act when the f train finally does arrive. My suffering in that scenario will be endless. So I wait for the train so I can throw myself under it. When it finally hits me, I will experience the pain of being ripped to pieces for century until finally the light of life leaves my brain and my experience ends. I've lived hundreds of lifespans at the foot of this bench. I am far older in spirit than any human who has ever lived. Most of my life experience has been a snapshot of pain huddled on the floor of a subway platform with an unchanging view of ankles and advertisements. This is my plan B, my Hail Mary, my long shot. I've spent lifetimes typing this and posting this message in the hope that someone will read it and become convinced that my suffering must end. Someone on this platform right now, someone who will find the man curled under the bench, the man who crawled down the escalator and kill him as swiftly as possible, a bullet to the temple. If you're armed and at the Glenmont Metro, please shoot me. This is called Darkness in the Rearview Mirror. In the summer of 2013, I found myself driving home alone on Highway 902 from a party. It was almost midnight, needless to say, it was pitch black. As was usual at night, I was on edge. I had the radio off and could hear nothing but the muffled roar of tires on pavement and the dumb hull of the engine. I stole a glance in the rearview mirror and saw nothing but darkness through the back window. I know that I looked back and saw nothing, I'm sure of it, just the seeming endless blackness of the night. I remember it so clearly because not ten seconds later a car passed me to the left. Headlights on. I had one of those sudden adrenaline rushes, like when you think you see a person outside your bedroom window when it's just a tree, or when you start awake at night with a feeling of falling. Ten seconds earlier, nothing had been behind me. Suddenly a car. I drove the rest of the way home shivering and knowing something was off. 
The next morning, I found two sets of scratches near the back of my van. One was on the left, one was on the right. The car was pretty old. They could have been there for months, but this was the first time I distinctly remembered seeing them. In hindsight, there are two possibilities for what happened that night. Possibility one. By some glitch in reality or something paranormal, this other car had somehow appeared behind me within ten seconds of me checking my mirror. Like some weird ghost crap or something. However, the second option is what makes my blood run cold whenever I consider it. It didn't even occur to me until months after the fact, but it makes me dread driving alone at night even more. Possibility two. The car was normal. It had approached me from the rear and passed me to my left. However, something large and wide and as black as the night had been clinging to the rear of my car, obscuring my view through the window and leaving deep scratches on the sides. And I had inadvertently driven it home with me. This is called The Invasion from Outer Space by Stephen Milhauser. From the beginning, we were prepared. We knew just what to do, for hadn't we seen it all a hundred times? The good people of town going about their business, the suddenly interrupted TV programs, the faces in the crowd looking up, the little girl pointing in the air, the mouths opening, the dog yapping, the traffic stopped, the shopping bag falling to the sidewalk, and there, in the sky, coming closer. And so when it finally happened, because it was bound to happen, we all knew it was only a matter of time, we felt, in the midst of our curiosity and terror, a certain calm, the calm of familiarity, we knew what was expected of us at such a moment. The story broke a little after ten in the morning. The TV anchors looked exactly the way we knew they'd look, their faces urgent, their hair neat, their shoulders tense. They were filling us with alarm, but also assuring us that everything was under control, for they, too, had been prepared for this, in a sense, had been waiting for it. Already they were looking back at themselves during their great moment. The sighting was indisputable, but, at the same time, inconclusive. Something from out there had been detected. It appeared to be approaching our atmosphere at great speed. The Pentagon was monitoring the situation closely. We were urged to remain calm, to stay inside, to await further instructions. Some of us left work immediately and hurried home to our families, Others stayed close to the TV, the radio, the computer. We were all talking into our cells. Through our windows, we could see people at their windows, looking up at the sky. All that morning, we followed the news fiercely, like children listening to a thunderstorm in the dark. Whatever was out there was still unknown. Scientists had not yet been able to determine its nature. Caution was advised, but there was no reason for panic. Our job was to stay tuned and sit tight and await further developments. And though we were anxious... Though quivers of nervousness ran along our bodies like mice, we wanted to see whatever it was. We wanted to be there, since after all it was coming toward us. It was ours to witness, as if we were the ones they had chosen, out there on the other side of the sky. For already it was being said that our town was the likely landing place. Already the TV crews were rolling in. We wondered where it would land, between the duck pond and the seesaws in the public park, or deep in the woods at the north end of town, or maybe in the field out by the mall, where a new excavation was already underway. Or maybe it would glide over the old department store on Main Street and crash through the second floor apartments above, above Maggione's Pizza and Cafe. With a great shattering of brick and glass, maybe it would land on the thoroughway and we'd say 18-wheelers turn over, great chunks of pavement rise up at sharp angles, and car after car swerve into the guardrail and roll down the embankment. 
Something appeared in the sky shortly before one o'clock. Many of us were still at lunch. Others were already outside, standing motionless on the streets and sidewalks, gazing up. There were shouts and cries, arms in the air, a wilderness of gesturing, pointing, and sure enough, something was glittering up there in the sky. Something was shimmering. In the blue air of summer, we saw it clearly, whatever it was. Secretaries in offices rushed to windows. Storekeepers abandoned their cash registers and hurried outdoors. Road workers in orange hard hats looked up from the asphalt, shaded their eyes. It must have lasted that faraway glow, that spot of shimmer, some three or four minutes. Then it began to grow larger until it was the size of a dime, a quarter. Suddenly the entire sky seemed to be filled with points of gold. Then it was coming down on us like fine pollen, like yellow dust. It lay on our roof slopes, it sifted down onto our sidewalks, covered our shirt sleeves in the tops of our cars. We did not know what to make of it. It continued to come down, that yellow dust, for nearly 13 minutes. During that time, we could not see the sky. Then it was over. The sun shone, the sky was blue. Throughout the downpour, we'd been warned to stay inside, to be careful, to avoid touching the substance from outer space but it had happened so quickly that most of us had had streaks of yellow on our clothes and in our hair. Preliminary tests revealed nothing toxic, though the nature of the yellow dust remained unknown. Animals that had eaten it revealed no symptoms. We were urged to keep out of its way and await further test results. Meanwhile, it lay over our lawns and sidewalks and front steps. It coated our maple trees and telephone poles. We were reminded of waking in the morning after the first snow. From our porches, we watched the three-wheeled sweepers moving slowly along our streets, carrying it off in big hoppers. We hosed down our grass, our front walks, our porch furniture. We looked up at the sky. We waited for more news. Already, we were hearing reports that the substance was composed of one-celled organisms. And through it all, we could sense the swell of our disappointment. We had wanted, we had wanted, oh, who knew what we'd been looking for? We had wanted blood, crushed bones, howls of agony. We had wanted buildings crumbling onto streets, cars bursting into flame. We had wanted monstrous versions of ourselves with enlarged heads on stock-like necks, merciless polished robots armed with death rays. We had wanted noble lords of the universe with kind, soft eyes who would usher in a new glorious era. We had wanted terror and ecstasy, anything but this yellow dust. Had it even been an invasion? Later that afternoon, we learned that scientists all agreed. The dust was a living thing. Samples had been flown to Boston, Chicago, Washington, D.C. The single-celled organisms appeared to be harmless, though we were cautioned not to touch anything, to keep the windows shut, to wash our hands. The cells reproduced by binary fission. They appeared to do nothing but multiply. In the morning, we woke to a world covered in yellow dust. It lay on the tops of our fences, on the crossbars of telephone poles. Black tire tracks showed in the yellow streets. Birds shaking their wings threw up sprays of yellow powder. Again, the street sweepers came. The hoses splashed on driveways and lawns, making a yellow mist and revealing the black and green underneath. Within an hour, the driveways and lawns resembled yellow fields. Lines of yellow ran along cables and telephone wires. According to the news, the unicellular microorganisms are rod-shaped and nourish themselves by photosynthesis. A single cell placed in a brightly illuminated test tube divides at such a rate that the tube will fill in about 40 minutes. An entire room in strong light will fill in six hours. The organisms do not fit easily into our classroom schemes. 
though in some respects they resemble blue-green algae. There is no evidence that they are harmful to human or animal life. We have been invaded by nothing, by emptiness, by animate dust. The invader appears to have no characteristic other than the ability to reproduce rapidly. It doesn't hate us. It doesn't seek our annihilation, our subjection, and humiliation. Nor does it desire to protect us from danger, to save us, to teach us the secret of immortal life. What it wishes to do is replicate. It is possible that we will find a way of limiting the spread of this primitive intruder, or of eliminating it altogether. It's also possible that we will fail and that our town will gradually disappear under a fatal accumulation. As we follow the reports from day to day, the feeling grows in us that we deserve something else. Something bolder, something grander, something more thrilling, something bristling or fiery or fierce, something that might have represented a revelation or a destiny. We imagine ourselves surrounding the tilted spaceship, waiting for the door to open. We imagine ourselves protecting our children, slashing the tentacles that thrush in through the smashed cellar windows. Instead, we sweep our front walks, hose off our porches, shake out our shoes and sneakers. The invader has entered our homes. Despite our drawn shades and closed curtains, it lies in thick layers on our end tables and windowsills. It lies along the top of our flat screen televisions and the narrow edge of our shelved DVDs. Through our windows, we can see the yellow dust covering everything, forming gentle undulations. We can almost see it rising slowly like bread. Here and there, it catches the sunlight and reminds us, for a moment, of fields of wheat. It really is quite peaceful in its way. <laughs>